small church of a few hundred in, uh, uh, what's the name of the jungles there? Uh, the Amazon jungles, right, uh, uh, of Brazil, and uh, struggled at, at that point. Their church membership and their growth within the church kind of plateaued. Um, things seemed to stagnate. They, for seven years, they got to a place where they had about 12 what we would call home teams or cell groups. And then they'd fall back to seven or eight and then back up to 10 and back down to nine and then up to 11. But they never got above 12 for, for seven years. It was just kind of a glass ceiling there. And they didn't understand what was happening. And a consultant came and talked to Pastor Abe and, and shared with him this concept of one-on-one discipleship being the ingredient that they might be missing. He didn't want to hear that at first. But after uh, a little while of further struggle, he decided that the Lord might be speaking to him. He needed to humble himself and give this a go. And when he did, for a year, the leaders in the church practiced this one-on-one apprenticing kind of relationship with one another. And lo and behold, the next year, instead of under 12 home teams, they had 17. And as that one-on-one dynamic began to seed itself and kind of grow within the body, not everybody was doing it at first, but uh, people saw the benefits of it and other people adopted it and got involved and that continued to grow. As that continued to grow... So seemed to be the outreach of the church and the cell group expansion. So that five years later, they didn't have 17 home teams. They had 800. 800 cells. Today, Pastor A pastors a church of 61,000 members. And it's, all, it's, it's, it's not the quantity that he says is distinctive of his church He says it's the quality of that kind of relational environment being alive within his church. His church is so healthy that it can't help but grow, right? And this kind of one-on-one discipling relationship that we're talking about this morning was key to the DNA of that church becoming all that it could be. In fact, I started to share this last week and, and ran out of time, concluded the service, Got us to uh, Luby's before the Baptists ate all the white meat. And, and, uh, and I wanted to come back and revisit this, okay? Uh, he says, this didn't transfer very well. The, the, he says, within God's plan for the world, and that whole black space up there on the screen is the world, you know. In God's plan for the world, the kingdom of God has invaded. And, and, and God's kingdom working itself out in this world at the very heart of that plan is the universal church of God. That church which Jesus said the gates of hell would not prevail against it. He told Peter that, uh, and I think By this, he meant that those who share that common confession that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, those who share that confession, who share that fellowship, are part of God's universal church. It doesn't matter if you're Methodist or Baptist or or Episcopalian or anything else. You know, if you have Christ in your heart, you're part of his kingdom plan in this world. You're part of his universal church. That's why we say as Methodists, and with many others, as we recite the Apostles' Creed, that we believe in the holy Catholic church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins. And by that, we're not saying that we Methodists are really Catholic. Not in the capital C sense, that we're a part of the Catholic denomination, the Catholic church, right? But Catholic is simply a word that first and still means universal. The universal church. 
the Catholic denomination was at first the universal church because that was the only church that was around for 900 years, you see. And, and so the Protestants came thereafter, but, but we are part of that universal church, that spiritual communion of believers in this world. At the heart of God's plan for the world is the universal church. At the heart of God's plan for the universal church is the local church where it comes to life, where we disciple one another, where we discover relationships with one another, that place where we, we, we come together to worship a common Lord and we're dispersed into the world with a shared ministry. That, that, that's the local church. But, but the heart of the local church, at least in his church, is the cell group. That's where the church gets small enough that we can all participate in a richer way than just by observation. Then, then by, is this a word, spectation? If you're, what does a spectator do? They, yeah. Uh, where we can actually get participatory, you know, where we can get involved, where we can love one another, where, where we can pray for one another, where we can serve one another. It, it, it takes the body usually getting in that kind of eyeball-to-eyeball kind of fellowship-sized group before that's really released. Here, here this morning, though, we're all here and worshiping together, and we are one in heart and spirit. If somebody three rows up from you starts shedding a tear, and the Holy Spirit convicts them, or the Holy Spirit starts comforting them, and you're aware that ministry is going on in their heart, but they're sitting there all by themselves, you may not feel permission three seats away to get up and go up there and pray for that person. But in a home team, I bet you would. In a home team, you'd feel free to pray for one another. In fact, many of the times, that's one of the main activities of what we do in home team. is simply praying and being there for one another, lifting one another up in that way. So he says, the cell group is at the heart of the local church. And for most people, that's the total picture of the cell church. That's it. But he's discovered this next step. And he says, at the heart of a cell group are these one-to-one relationships sponsor and mentors and mentees, uh, sponsors and and those that, sponsees, those that they're following. In the early church, uh, they would call these who sponsored God-sibs, God-siblings. And because in the early church, the church was persecuted and you couldn't out yourself as a Christian in that environment without getting killed, that often the way they witnessed to one another was like this. Lots of whispers. And today we get our word gossip from God. Sib. The whispers. Mentoring was such a part of the church that it actually became uh, a word uh, that grew out of that early church environment. They, they were siblings and sponsors and mentors uh, to one another as they grew in the Lord. I want to take that one step further and say that within these groups, though, there is a necessary circulation. What does a heart do? It pumps. It, 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 it circulates. When it's alive, it sends blood out and it receives blood back and it warms it and oxygenates it and you know, back through the lungs and then back around through the whole, through, uh, through, through the whole body. The, the heart is a circulation thing. Yeah, keep going there. I'm going to skip right over this and get to the... Is there another slide that says something about... There we go. Uh, 
the first one I want to point to is the, the, the little triangles on the outside. Now, this is Pastor Abe's teaching that I'm trying to reiterate here quite quickly. He says that in, in the parachurch where the church is doing its work out in the world, out beyond the local church, those are often called parachurch uh, places of service. They're, they're, they're almost one in, in every community someplace where the church is bound together to, to meet the needs of the poor and those that are in, in an emergency situation. You might find places like Restore Hope or uh, A New Leaf or... Um, broken arrow neighbor, or, or, or those, those kinds of help agencies that, where the church goes out to serve right at the edge of the community. He calls those parachurch uh, uh, ministries, but there's a circulation there. Where do the believers come from in order to serve in those kind of ministries? They usually come out of the church, and people serve in the world, and then they go back to the church to get their oomph, and their heart to go back in that difficult place and to serve people there without any strings attached, giving themselves away. They come back to the church to be filled. There's a circulation uh, from the local church to ministries beyond the church. Uh, but also within the local church, what's going on there? Those little diamonds are, are uh, service ministries or, or outreach programs. The, the church commonly is a place where we not only gather to worship, but we start to organize ourselves to have a ministering effect to the world and to one another uh, within the church. So there's all kinds of ministry uh, p- programs for which the church exists. But where are those kind of disciples nurtured and strengthened for, for their ministries within the church. We're often cared for then in the cell so that we have hearts to care for outside the cell. I, I've been told by so many people who visit our church, their experience is that people are friends as soon as you walk in the door almost. It's, it's, it's kind of a, I don't mean to brag on us here, but I'm just telling you what I hear them tell me, that it's kind of a categorical different experience than a church that just manages to be friendly. It seems to be this is a church of friends, and friendliness is just part of what we do. Well, I think that personality for who we are when we gather together is shaped by how we are in our cell groups. Cell groups don't exist to isolate themselves from the church, to be rogue to uh, do things on their own. But, but cells in and of themselves, if they're not connected to the church, can become enclosed. They can become an enclave merely for fellowship rather than a, a team and outreach. So th- there, there's a circulation factor there to the ministries of the church and also into the cell group. But, but Pastor Abe discovered that there's also a heart to the cell group. That unless people are in one-on-one discipleship, growing in the Lord, being challenged by a mentor, looking forward to their opportunities of ministry, growing in those opportunities of ministry until they have the confidence then to maybe lead a home team, then what often happens is in home teams, we participate with one another, we enjoy one another, the relationships become rich and caring, but sometimes not a whole lot of discipling goes on. Because usually, in order to grow as a disciple, something is required of us that's really not that comfortable or maybe even that appropriate in a mixed group of 12 to 15 people. And that is this idea of transparency. Now, even within our home team, sometimes we'll split up into all the guys in the living room to talk about this and all the ladies in the kitchen to talk, talk about that same subject. And e- even within our home teams, we've discovered a whole other level 
of, of transparency and openness and richness and, and fruitfulness for change? Wouldn't we just get gender specific? But, but when you go one-on-one, the opportunity for transparency becomes so great that partnership and sometimes even the, string, uh, the secret places in our life we find a partner that gives us strength, that helps us overcome, that holds us accountable and believes in us and lifts us up when we would be down on ourselves. That kind of one-on-one relationship becomes a life-transforming, life-traction experience when we become that transparent with one another as disciples. But it's not just transparency. The other thing that the one-on-one relationship gives us uniquely, I think, is something I would call traction. I, I wonder if this is true for you because it was for me those years that I and those years still that I sit in a pew and I, I hear a message and th- there are times when what's said I know it's not really being said by the guy or gal up there it's I, there's a resonance in the spirit I, don't, I know God's knocking on my door you know what I'm talking about and, and I pay attention to that I try to pay attention to that I try to have good intentions with that. In fact, there's times when I promise God and promise myself upon hearing a word like that that the next week was going to be different. And, and then Monday came. And, and the daytimer got full. And, and my good intentions somehow got lost. You, you, know, you know what I've discovered in my own relationships of mentoring? And uh, Bill Gillingham has mentored me in the past. And recently, as I started to study this, I thought that's something that's missing in my life in some fashion. I, I, I want him back online. And so we've met. We've talked about that. We've been meeting with one another again. And I, I, I didn't realize until I had it back in my life how much I had missed his mentorship. And uh, Bill has never been a pastor. And it doesn't matter. He's a brother in the Lord. I trust his maturity. And I'm following Christ. I'm not following Bill. So I'm only following Bill to the extent that I see Christ and what Bill's telling me. But the truth of the matter is, Bill is what I call a Rogerian prophet. He speaks, if you know what Rogerian is, that's the, the psychology of only mirroring back to someone what you hear them saying. Uh, Carl Rogers came up with that. It, it's reflective therapy, right? So, so you, you are just a mirror so that person can see themselves. And it's amazingly how much better you can groom yourself when you have a mirror. Have you ever noticed? Mirrors can be very helpful. And so I, I don't think Bill has ever once told me to do anything. What he has done is told me what he hears God saying and what I'm saying. In other words, he, he underlines those things for me as I share where I am with him and what I'm hearing for the Lord. He says, so, so, so Chris, do I hear you saying? And he'll, he'll, he'll lay it back. That's his daughter laughing right there. Do, do, do you hear? Do you hear? Do you, do, okay, so this, this is what I hear you saying. And he'll, he'll lay that out for me. And all of a sudden, it'll start becoming clear because I'm kind of speaking it out. And almost always before, he, he carries these little three-by-five cards with him. He always got his three-by-five cards. And, and uh, I didn't tell him to do this. He, he's just a good mentor. He knows to do this. So every time we meet, he'll say, so, so what are you, 
before we meet again, there's one or two things I hear rising to the top. Well, what do you think those are? And I'll say, well, I think it's this, and I'll think, that's what I'm hearing. That's what, would you mind if, if I asked you about that the next time we meet? You know, I say, no, no, you can ask. And, and then what often happens is I meet with him, you know, a week or two weeks later. We sit down for lunch, and out comes the three-by-five card, all right? And, and he wrote it down. I probably didn't, knowing me. Uh, I, I probably didn't. And lots of times, I, I will not have, I, Monday came and I forgot. Monday came and a new set of trials and urgencies came upon me. And, and this great intention of mine, without even intending to, was somehow put on the back burner. It was set aside. In fact, it's often on my way to breakfast with Bill that I remember my list. But he doesn't shame me. He doesn't put me down. He just says, oh, oh, okay, where are we this week? And do you still see that as one of your top two priorities? And, and, and where do you want to be next week? Do you mind if I bring that up again? Right? And, and, and so every two, it's, it's not as if, but it would be so easy if I didn't meet with Bill for that thing that I forgot about for two weeks to be forgotten about for two months to be forgotten about for two years. In other words, when it comes to those good intentions, I am just spinning my wheels. Right? But with his gentle walking alongside me as he does, it's amazing how so many of those good intentions find traction. It's a huge, I I am so much a better pastor when I'm being mentored by Bill Gillingham than I ever am trusting it to my memory and my daytimer. And and I would bet that's true not only for pastors, I would bet that's true for all of us. And whatever our intentions are as Christ's disciple, to have someone walking with us in that particular way, it's not just for transparency's sake, it's for the the strength of finding traction. And when we find traction, that transforms our world. When we find transparency with someone, that transforms our inner character. But it's all part of serving God's agenda to be working in and through our lives. It was huge for Pastor Huber's church. And I hear stories like that and I wonder, wow, am I going to have to go to Brazil? Follow Pastor Huber around for for a year before I get any of this. Well, lo and behold, God has placed his daughter right here in our midst. And she's been discipled in this way. She's discipled others in this way. She's led home teams within her own church. She has walked this walk. And she's going to be among us, I think, to renew, establish, maybe for the first time, this, this kind of traction and transparency and, and transformation in our lives as disciples. I, I can't wait to see how God unfolds it. But the truth is that there are clues all through the scripture of how God unfolds it. It was going on in the New Testament as it unfolded. And this morning, I want us to look at one such relationship uh, as it was, uh, John Mark. Now, in in the next several weeks, uh, and I'll come back and finish up this series uh, after being away for a few weeks.